the law, the, the, the policy still hasn't changed with, uh, as far as how the dogs are classified. They are still classified as excess equipment. That, that hasn't changed, but the military has recognized now uh, what an asset these canines are to the military. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for joining us today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from uh, an unseasonably mild Massachusetts. Craig, how's the weather out where you are? It is absolutely beautiful. It's going to be in the mid-70s and sunny and mild all week long, and it has been for Christmas. It's just gorgeous. Um, so, yeah, I'm Craig Williams from a very <laughs> sunny and beautiful Southern California, and uh, I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court, and uh, trying to get people to still buy my book, How to Get Sued. And, uh, Bob, I know you write a couple of blogs. That's right. I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And we'd also like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com and Firm Manager from LexisNexis at myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Well, they are highly trained, invaluable assets in times of war. They fight right alongside our women and men in uniform by detecting explosives, finding enemies, chasing down anyone who tries to flee. We're talking about the incredible canines used by the U.S. military. About 3,000 dogs are deployed with American forces around the world. But Bob, officially, dogs that serve next to U.S. soldiers are still considered equipment. Throughout much of America's military history, these canine soldiers were left behind in former war zones, sometimes even euthanized after the fighting stopped. Many people believe war dogs have not been given the respect that they deserve. Well, we're going to talk more about that today uh, with two guests uh, who are going to help us explore this topic. Uh, first of all, let me introduce uh, Ron Aiello. Ron is the president and co-founder of the United States War Dogs Association, Ron is a Vietnam veteran and military dog handler. Uh, welcome to the show, Ron Aiello. Well, thank you uh, for uh, allowing me to be on your show today. And Bob Carter Dillard is also joining our discussion today. Carter is the Director of Litigation for the Animal Legal Defense Fund and has been fighting for the rights of animals for many years. We're glad to have him on the show. Welcome, Carter. Thanks very much. Well, Ron, you tend to be the, I think, more one here that has firsthand knowledge about American war dogs. Can you give us a little bit about the history of canines in the military? Well, the canines go back to World War I on a very limited basis. Uh, it wasn't until World War II that we started Dogs for Defense. And what it was, the uh, American Kennel Club and the DOD set up Dogs for Defense, and they reached out to the general public and asked them to loan their dogs to the cause. And uh, about 30,000 dogs were loaned to the military, and approximately a third of them did see combat. Uh, I want to jump to the Vietnam. Not much happened with in Korea with the uh, the dogs. They were there, but on a limited basis because of the weather, the snow, and so forth. And, but when we got to Vietnam, uh, we had close to uh, uh, five thousand dogs over there, 
And unfortunately, the government at that point, uh, when the war ended, uh, decided to turn over about 2,700 of these dogs to the South Vietnamese Army, and the balance were either euthanized or abandoned uh, uh, in Vietnam. It was a disgrace uh, for the military, our government, to do this after these dogs, uh, wonderful canines, uh, served so well and sa saved so many lives. In uh, the year 2000, um, uh, a resolution was passed by Congress and signed by uh, President Clinton in November 2000, which uh, set up a retirement program and an adoption program uh, so the dogs would not be uh, put down at the end of their usefulness. Uh, the program's been working fairly well since then. A few glitches, but we're working on that. Today, uh, we have uh, 3,000 dogs in the total in the military about 700 of them are in the Middle East. They were in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now they're all in the Afghanistan, and there are some in Kuwait and some surrounding countries. And they're doing the same jobs they've done through history, you know, and that is uh, finding booby traps, uh, landmines, enemy snipers, ambushes, uh, and they're protecting the troops and saving lives on a daily basis. Well, Carter Dillard, let's bring you into the conversation. And uh, you're, uh, as we said, director of litigation for the Animal Legal Defense Fund. What, uh, what, what are the, what is the military's responsibility to uh, these dogs when when it decides to retire them from service? Well, uh, you know, as was mentioned in 2000, um, the U.S. really updated its law um, to require or or to permit adoption and transfer of former military working dogs, uh, and that changed uh, historic policy where the dogs really were treated as purely equipment and um, euthanized. Uh, and now the adoption and transfer is encouraged uh, generally to former handlers, law enforcement, or really any other person capable of humane care. Uh, so it's it's fairly uh, extensive opportunity for adoption. There's also an obligation for reporting to Congress uh, on uh, how many dogs are adopted out. And when dogs are euthanized rather than adopted, usually because they're not suitable for adoption, the reasons have to be given uh, in that report to Congress. So it's it's a real advanced from advanced from really the the time between World War II and uh, and 2000, when Robbie's Law was was written, in um, where animals were essentially treated as you know, arm, army property, no it, different it, than it, what was the tanks. impetus for that? What 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 brought that law about? Well, I have to probably defer to Ron on that. I well, um, that was the the Robbie case where Robbie was going to be euthanized. Prior to that, what what the military was doing is when the dog can no longer work in the field in combat situations. They would send the dog to Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, where the dogs are initially trained. And the dog would become a training dog. But we didn't know at the end of the usefulness of this dog, when he can no, no longer even be used as a training dog, they automatically euthanized the dog. There was no adoption program. And at that point, uh, Robbie's situation got out to the media uh, and a lot of organizations, animal rights organizations, military organizations, and everybody got together and they started to uh, solicit uh, their their congressmen 
their representatives uh, that this is wrong. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't save Robbie. Uh, Robbie was euthanized, but because of Robbie, uh, this resolution, which was uh, HR 5314, came about in November 2000. So that's w- that's where it came uh, uh, started. Uh, prior to that, we we thought these dogs were were treated a little better at the end of their their usefulness, and they weren't. They were just euthanized, and that was totally wrong. Uh, these dogs are probably in the nine to eleven year range uh, when they're retired. They only have a few years left uh, of life, and and why not live uh, in a nice, peaceful, surrounding, loving uh, uh, atmosphere for their? You know, like we like, we want to retire right. as humans and take it easy at the end of our life. And I think the dogs should be able to do the same thing. I'd like to and I'll, I'll just point out one, one thing in Robbie's law. It, it does require that the dogs that are transferred or adopted be no longer useful unless there's an extraordinary or unusual circumstance or that they be in excess of what the military can use. So while it's a great law, we probably ought to recognize that it's still um, – it, it's not rewarding the dogs necessarily for their service because one of the requirements really is that the dog can't provide any more service. It's, it's, there's still a, an element of seeing the dog sort of as, as nearly valuable for, for use, but it's a tremendous advance from where, uh, as, as Ron pointed out, the dogs were before it. Yeah. Now, the one point to make out now, the law, the, the, the policy still hasn't changed with, uh, as far as how the dogs are classified. They are still classified as excess equipment. That, that hasn't changed, but the military has recognized now uh, what an asset these canines are to the military. Before, the, 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 upper, uh, the upper personnel in government and the military had no real idea what these dogs can really accomplish. And now, since we originally went into Afghanistan and then Iraq, they're, they're realizing uh, that these dogs are a, a huge asset and that they should be treated much better. So are, what protections need to be put in place to uh, take care of the dogs, either after their service or recognize that they've served long enough and they need to retire just like people do? Well, one of the things we're, we've been trying to do now is we've been trying to get a, an amendment to the original uh, resolution, H.R. 5314. Uh, we would like to see the dogs reclassified, not as equipment, but as something more uh, substantial or more humane uh, to call the dog uh, not equipment or excess equipment, but maybe a uh, uh, canine veteran. Uh, to give it a better classification and to uh, help with the adoption process. Uh, we want the adoption process to go a little bit faster. Uh, these dogs only have a couple of years left uh, of life, and it could take up to a year, a year and a half to get a dog adopted out. And that's because of the, the, the red tape they go through, the paperwork, everything. I think they could probably cut that down to about maybe five months or six months. Uh, you know, you're talking if the dog only has three years left and, and you're talking a year, a year and a half, by the time the dog does get out there retired, the dog's only got about a year left. So we would like to see that a little, uh, speed it up a little bit. And uh, the other the other thing is uh, 
transportation of these dogs, when they are overseas, uh, say a dog's in Germany, and the dog's retired, and the person that's adopting the dog is in the States, that person has to pay for the transportation of the dog from Germany to the States, which could cost up to $1,200. I'd like to see the military transport the dog to the United States first, then retire it, so they could transport that dog on a cargo plane as a representative of the military. And then retire the dog, becomes a civilian, basically, and adopt it out. Carter, what about you? What are, what's what's your organization's position on these uh, further reforms to the law that Ron is talking about? Well, we're fully supportive of them. I mean, I think it, it's consistent with common sense. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to sort of recognize a, a particular gun or tank for its service in combat, but... Uh, based on what these dogs do, everything from IED uh, detection to now taking part in actually subduing enemy combatants to patrols to drug detection, all of these services uh, where the dog's at significant risk, it seems to make common sense to recognize the dog uh, for for his or her service. And, and therefore, I think recognizing them as a different category than equipment um, is only consistent with common sense and sort of a progressive view of, of how these dogs are not the same as guns and tanks. Um, I think one one other area of concern um, is the really the lack of clear regulation regarding how the dogs can be treated while they're in service. Um, right now, it, it appears that the only protection that the dogs have from acts of cruelty and I'm not suggesting that those acts are common or even likely in light of the normally the dog, and Ron can speak to this more closely, but normally the the close control that handlers have over the dogs. But in in the event of an act of animal cruelty, it looks like the Uniform Code of Military Justice generally would would, um, uh, bring courts martial cases under the general provision, Article 134, which prohibits conduct that's prejudicial to good order and discipline. So there's not a specific regulation uh, in the Uniform Code of Military Justice that is essentially a military animal cruelty law, Um, although the the, uh, manual on courts martial refers to uh, prosecution under Section or under Article 134 um, for abuse of a public animal, and there's a whole provision that refers to that. But I, I think in addition to changing the classification of uh, animals that are retiring um, from equipment to something more like a, a canine veteran, there could also be uh, an improvement in, in the Uniform Code of Military Justice prohibiting, in essence, what we view as animal cruelty under state law. Uh, you're absolutely right on that. Um, but here's, the, here's what has changed. I know when I was in Vietnam, as a Marine scout dog handler, we were specifically told by our, our, our command that if you ever mistreat your dog, you'll, you will be court-martialed. Uh, uh, that was a policy. It wasn't written down. It was more or less, you know, a command's uh, voice uh, telling you uh, that you couldn't do this. Uh, what they've done in the military today is if they've made, they've given, this is interesting, they won't give uh, a classification to the dog as other than equipment, but they'll give the dog rank, which makes no sense. 
but the, the purpose of giving the dog rank. If I am a corporal in the military, the dog is a sergeant. If I am a sergeant, the dog is a staff sergeant. They put the dog one grade above the handler. And the reason for that is you always respect your superior. And the dog is considered your, your superior uh, in the military, which works out fairly well. Uh, and, and these handlers, male and female uh, handlers, they love their dogs. And it's very seldom that the dog does get mistreated. It's not saying it doesn't happen. Uh, it happened uh, about three or four years ago. There was actually a video on YouTube, and it was a handler training his dog over in Iraq, and the dog didn't do what he was supposed to be doing. And right in the video, he goes over and he kicks his dog. Uh, I went to look into it. The video was about six months old, but and the handler was no longer in the military. They they actually court-martialed him and threw him out of the, uh, gave him a dishonorable discharge for that act. So, and, what, and that, what is the what, what is the life happen. of one of these? What is the life of one of these dogs like while they're in the service? I mean, are, are they specifically bred for this? Are, are they raised for this? At what point do they yes. start working with a handler? What's it, what's it look uh, like? The, these? the training program uh, is at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. When the dog is about nine weeks old, the dog actually goes into a foster home and lives with a family until the dog's about six months old. And this is so the dog can interact with, with humans. Uh, then it goes back to Lackland Air Force Base at about six months old, and they start the training program process of training this dog with uh, basic obedience, advanced basic obedience. And, uh, you know, by the time uh, it gets to the point where they're, they're starting to train the dog, you know, for sniffing IEDs and so forth like that, dog's probably at that point, you know, it's maybe uh, uh, nine months old. And by, by the time it hits... 12 years old, it's, it's, it's fully trained and uh, in the field. So they do have, they have a really great training program. Uh, they train the, the, uh, uh, a lot of the Belgian Malinois. They breed them and train them in Lackland and Air Force Base. There are some German Shepherds that they do get from Europe. They purchase from Europe, but they're, they're, they're purchased from a breeder who, who does nothing but breed the dogs for the military here. Uh, and the other dog that they use is Labrador Retriever. And again, th those, uh, uh, I believe, are, are purchased uh, from a breeder. Carter, I know you talked about some of the laws that relate to uh, the protection of animals, but what, what laws relate to the animal's status? Uh, you know, obviously a dog's not a person, but what kind of protections do animals get? Uh, are they... Are they elevated to people's status, you know, from the standpoint of, of protections, or is it that kind of the kind of thing that is a state-by-state state basis? Well, yeah, I mean, I think military law reflects, uh, you know, state law in the U.S. and federal law, which is that under the law, general classification is that animals are property. Um, even Robbie's law refers to um, horses that are, quote-unquote, owned by the Department of Defense. Um, so uh, it's, it sort of follows traditional and I think regressive view of animals that they are treated essentially as property. The problem with that classification uh, is that property, by definition, has no interest itself. 
it really is is left up to the interests of the owner or owners or people that have an interest in the the res or property. So military law, as I say, you know, even Robbie's law refers to animals being owned and you know referring to them as equipment. I think makes makes clear that they're considered you know virtually inanimate property. That that really carries through um, carries through military law as well. That said, the the classification aside. Um, there, there, you know, under Article 134, although it could be improved, there is reference to, um, uh, courts martial for wrongful abuse of a public animal, as long as that wrongful abuse rises to the level of something that prejudices good order and discipline in the military. So, you, you wouldn't be, I mean, as, as well, I don't know that much about military law, but, uh, my guess is the penalty is more severe for abusing and mistreating your, uh, animal than it would be for mistreating another piece of equipment. Um, and furthermore, while the 134 applies, uh, in the field and abroad, um, in the U.S., in theory, I don't know of any cases that have actually applied this, uh, but in theory, on military bases in the U.S. under the Federal Assimilative Crimes Act, um, the uh, someone abusing animals on a military base in a, in a federal military enclave could still be prosecuted under state animal cruelty law. Um, uh, they couldn't be prosecuted under both that and, and the um, UCMJ, but they could be prosecuted under either one of them for abusing an animal. So in a sense, while they're classified as inanimate, objects uh, and, and property without interests, they still receive the benefit of, of animal welfare protection, although it could be improved. This holiday season has brought the, uh, the Steven Spielberg movie, The War Horse, uh, to theaters. Are, are there still horses in, in the military? Are there other animals in the military that uh, that need protecting? Uh, I don't believe they're using horses any longer uh, in the military. Uh, basically, the, the the dogs you know, are the, the canines are, are the uh, animal de- of use of choice with the military today. Um, Pretty much as they are with law enforcement and, and similar kinds of roles. Right, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, law enforcement, you know, civilian law enforcement in the states are doing a job here, and, and the military is doing it the same job, but they're doing it in a foreign country. Uh, you know, they're, they're similar in so many ways. You have a dog, a dog team in the Middle East doing a um, uh, a bomb search. You have a, a canine law enforcement team here in the states doing a bomb search. I mean, they're doing the same job, just in two different locations. And the only only other animal that I'm familiar with the, the military having used would the Navy did use marine mammals to interdict uh, enemy combatant divers. I understand there was actually active use of those. Uh, in Iraq, uh, although Ron may know more about that. Yeah, I'm not. I'm uh, not real. I've I've heard some stories. I've read a couple of accounts of them, and I'm not really that familiar with them. Uh, I know during my time in the military, after I got back from um, uh, Vietnam, I was stationed in Key West, Florida, and uh, they did have uh, those mammals down there, and they were training them to do what you you just spoke about. Uh, as far as the continuation of them over the years, uh, you know, I had no knowledge really on that. Well, Rob, what what about your dog? You had a, a canine dog in the military. Yeah, I had a, I had a, a female canine uh, uh, by the name of Stormy. Uh, we uh, we met together at Fort Benning, Georgia, um, 
I was in the Marine Corps, but the Marine Corps did not have a training program. The Army did, so they sent us to Fort Benning, Georgia, and the Army Army trained us. And I hate to say it, they did a, a heck of a good job in training us. Uh, and uh, Stormy and I trained uh, for three months, day and night training, and then they flew us right over to Vietnam. Uh, when we got there, we had to take about at least 20 days to climatize these dogs because we left Georgia at the end of February and got there in the beginning of March, and we went from cold weather to 110 degrees. Uh, so you had to be very careful with the dogs and uh, give them plenty of water and gradually work them into uh, uh, train their training into the, the, the field. So it took about 20 days uh, where we were actually able to uh, tell the Marine Corps uh, ward, uh, scout dogs are ready to be deployed, uh, and we could go out there in the field and spend a day or three days or whatever and not have to worry about our, our dog coming down with a heat stroke. Um, unfortunately, uh, I don't know what happened to Stormy. Um, you know, um, I, I would think, uh, if anything, she got killed in action. I wouldn't yeah. want to think that she was turned over to the South Vietnamese Army. Yeah. Well, we're just about out of time for uh, this uh, segment of the program. Uh, before we close, though, we'd like to welcome each of you to give your concluding thoughts uh, on this and also let our listeners know how they can follow up with you and learn more about the work that you're doing. So, Ron, let's start with you. Uh, if anyone's interested in finding out more about the uh, military work and dogs, they could go to our website, which is uswardogs.org. And they could also phone me at 609-747-9340. Um, and uh, I want to thank you for having me on the show again today. And Rob, you, if our listeners are interested in adopting a, a war dog, they can work with you to do that? Yes, we, we do help with the process. Excellent. Uh, that program has been going quite well. Good. And Carter, your final thoughts and, and your contact information for our listeners, please? Sure. Well, thanks very much for having me. I, I, again, like just to suggest, I think it's a good idea if we could reclassify animals under an amendment to Robbie's law so that they are no, no longer viewed as equipment. Uh, and I think canine veteran classification makes sense. I also think there there probably is real grounds to uh, amend the Uniform Code of military, military Justice to establish a modern animal cruelty code that uh, applies much more broadly and with, with greater sanctions for abuse of animals um, in the military. And if anyone wants to find out more about the Animal Legal Defense Fund uh, and our mission, uh, our website is aldf.org animallegaldefensefund.org, and I really appreciate your having me on. Well, thanks to both of you. Thank you. Uh, we need to take a short break right now. Uh, when we come back, Craig and I will share our some uh, brief thoughts on the legal year that was 2011. Uh, Lawyer to Lawyer returns on Legal Talk Network right after this. You've heard of Firm Manager. You've seen ads for Firm Manager. Now you can try Firm Manager free for 30 days at www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Firm Manager is the web-based matter management application from LexisNexis that lets you run your practice anywhere, anytime, including your desktop, laptop, mobile phone, or iPad. Take the free 30-day trial today at www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN and spend less time focusing on clerical work 
and more time on practicing law. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Well, welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. And as uh, Bob wrote to me in the uh, beginning of the show that uh, we've we've gone to the dogs, but we paused for a short commercial. We're back, <laughs> and uh, Bob, we're gonna we're gonna do a quick wrap up for uh, this year and uh, do a little bit of summary about some of the shows that we did and and uh, things that you think were significant. So, Bob, what are your thoughts? Well, I have to say, uh, when I, I I was looking back at the shows we did this year uh, to kind of get a, a reminder, it's funny how quickly you you can kind of forget things that happen. But there were just a, a couple of things that we did shows about this year that are really difficult to forget. Uh, maybe uh, topmost among them. Uh, we did actually two shows on 9-11. This, was, of course, was the 10th anniversary year of 9-11. We did a show earlier in the year uh, talking about a, a film that was made uh, uh, tracing the uh, Victims' Compensation Fund and, and uh, its efforts to uh, compensate victims of the uh, 9-11 terrorist attacks. And then uh, uh, later in the year, we had uh, the, the producer and director of that film on, along with Leo Boyle, who had been uh, president of uh, Associate, American Association for Justice. Uh, at, the, at the time, it was still ATLA, uh, which was uh, very much involved in uh, efforts to bring about this uh, victims' compensation program. So uh, that was, a, that was a, a stark reminder of uh, some things we never forget. And then just real quickly, the other thing, looking back at the beginning of the year, was uh, we, we were t- talking about the, the, the shootings in Tucson, uh, 
the the horrible tragic uh, shootings that we're we're still talking about today uh, uh, you know uh, fortunately there's been uh, some some good developments to come out of that but uh, just a just a horrible tragedy uh, we were talking about the the need for gun control then yeah and one of the shows that i thought was significant in fact kind of opened my eyes uh, that i was completely unaware of is the significant number of pharmacy errors and the number of people that are injured each year as a consequence of getting the prescriptions mixed up uh, or the wrong dosage or interactions with other drugs, that that show kind of opened my eyes to things that I had not really thought about. I thought that our, you think that the pharmacy system in the United States between doctors and the FDA and, and uh, us, you know, is, is one that is, uh, safe and protected, but, but it was kind of shocking to learn that it, that's not really the case. And more than anything else, you have a personal responsibility to make sure that the drugs you're getting are, are appropriate and the right quantity and the right concentrations and and don't interact with other things. And that you're the last line of defense to make sure that you're protected. No, I, I was just going to say, yeah, we talked about litigation. A lot. There are a lot of interesting aspects of litigation we talked about, but, uh, but go ahead, continue your thought. Well, I, I was just going to turn on to turn over to uh, the fallout in Japan and the safety of nuclear power plants that we talked about, and just um, you know another, uh, and I guess it was a, a year of kind of highlighting uh, dangers around the world and, and things that we uh, think are safe, but not necessarily as safe as we once thought that they were. We've, we've been led to believe, and it's. Uh, kind of as your eyes open up and we learn more about what goes on, it, it becomes kind of a more frightening place. I think that uh, the year of, uh, you know, I've, I've read something on the news the other day that uh, about new words that are coming out. And uh, one of them was meh, M-E-H, and uh, the, the meh list that the uh, Times puts out. But, I, you know, I think it's... Perhaps it is kind of a like, what do we do with all of this? But uh, it seems to me that, that 2011, with uh, everything that's going on and everything that we covered, it's just a little bit more of a frightening year than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And of course, the other big story that was reflected in a number of our shows, well, not the other, there's a number of them, but another uh, big story for the legal profession was the economy and its impact on the legal profession and on the practice of law. And I know that over the course of the year, we did uh, a couple of shows uh, talking about the legal job market. We did a show talking about uh, law schools. This is a a, a growing uh, topic uh, of controversies even still, uh, the extent to which law schools uh, are perhaps uh, complicit in uh, not giving uh, full disclosure to incoming law students about uh, the state of their prospects for for uh, future employment. I know our, our producer, Mike Hockman, is probably listening attentively right now because he's, he's in law school. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, this continue, this debate continues to, to roil and uh, the ABA is uh, getting more involved looking for law schools to uh, ramp up the disclosures and the reporting that they're uh, giving. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's even been uh, evidence that some law schools have been fudging their figures just to make themselves look better. So uh, quite a quite an interesting year from that point of view. Well, and then we've got background checks and uh, all types of things that we've talked about throughout the year and uh, legal marketing and the types of uh, acts and steps that lawyers can take to try and bring in clients. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, uh, in some ways the profession, um, is being hit from a number of sides, and and yet you know it still goes on. Yep, 
and then uh, Wall Street and uh, Wall Street. <laughs> Wall Street continues to be a mess. Uh, I, I, I we, you know, usually around this time of year, starting sometime soon, we we do a, a show on predictions for the coming year, uh, and uh, I, I look forward to doing that because I'm hoping that uh, we might be able to paint a, a somewhat more optimistic picture for the coming year. Uh, I think this this year might be remembered this past year as as the beginning of a turnaround. I like to think uh, I may be in the minority in believing that, but. Uh, uh, I, I do think we are uh, starting to see signs of a turnaround, and I hope that that, that happens. I agree with you, Bob. You know, I've noticed and, and had a conversation uh, with another lawyer over the weekend about this. There is a significant amount of uh, apartment starts. While housing starts are down uh, out here in California, at least in Orange County where I live, there have been a surprising number of apartments that have popped up, and uh, the general consensus is that that's a great kickstart for the economy because when that occurs, it means that uh, more people are into uh, somewhat traditional apartments and then are able to save money and put money down as a down payment on a house and you know eventually restart the housing market. So within the next year, it looks like that's going to be occurring. That's a good thing. Well, uh, I guess we should wrap it up then. Well, and I'm going to predict, Bob, that our next show <laughs> okay. is going to be about predictions. Um, we're looking forward to having uh, our annual prognostication show next week. Uh, hopefully we can get Steve Kaplan back on. He's been our predictor for a number of years and, and has done a good job. We evaluate his predictions from last year and then look forward to uh, his predictions of this year. So that'll be a great show. Well, either you are clairvoyant in predicting that we're going to do that prediction show or you're very good at reading the notes from our producers. Uh, I'm not sure which, but... Well, I, I don't want to be barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, uh, I think it's time to wrap this up. But uh, a very good program and a very interesting topic. Uh, and uh, uh, it turns out it's a very real uh, issue. And, and I'm very glad we tackled it. It was a good topic. So... Good suggestion, Craig. I'll give you credit for yeah, that. Yeah, thanks. Nice nice topic for the end of the year, I think. Yeah, kind of yeah. get a feel-good story about people making a difference in, in uh, the lives of dogs around the world and hopefully um, having a few of them live out their last years of service uh, in the comfort of a, of a family home where they're loved and taken care of rather than uh, euthanized or left and abandoned in a place where they've served. Uh, it seems like, you know, they've saved lives for us, and so we ought to do the same for them. Well, on that note, uh, happy New Year to you, Craig. We will be back uh, in 2012 with uh, perhaps another 12 months of these shows. Yep, and it'll be year seven, so uh, we're looking forward to that, and uh, we will see you again next week. So we want to remind our listeners that they can get all of our Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. If you would like to get CLE credit through the West Legal Ed Center, go to thelegaltalknetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. We will see you again next week, and a happy new year, and see you in 2012. Good. Talk to you then. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.